Digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 2nd of August, 2023. Coming up in the program, um, our ramble round Coventry's architectural treasures stops this week at St. John the Baptist at Spawn Street, one of the most interesting churches in the city. We'll also be hearing about the life of Coventry-born Vince Hill, who died a week or so ago. Um, we're also um, hearing about rowdy dogs and owners and what to do about them, and that's uh, an article written by Donna Ferguson and read by Sue. Um, there's the astonishing story of the US adventurer who claimed to have reached the Earth's northernmost point, and the Fleet Street reporter who smelt a rat. It's a good tale, that. Um, that's taken from the Express and read by Bill. Um, Susie Dent on how our slips of the tongue help the English language evolve. And finally, Dave and Graham visit Derby, starting with the Derby Computer Museum. But first, here's the news this week from myself. And Elaine. Outlook News. A Coventry Care Home resident felt like a queen when she received 233 cards on her 102nd birthday. Born in 1921, Phyllis Deacon from Herald Lodge in Canley joined the Royal Air Force at aged 18 in 1939, where she stayed for five years until she and her husband Wilfred married and honeymooned in London. On their return to Coventry, Phyllis and Wilfred started a family, having two children named Anne and John. Phyllis worked as a wage clerk. Later in life when she retired, Phyllis's hobbies were focused on arts and crafts at the Women's Institute, where she would sell her paintings, drawings and pressed flowers on a Wednesday morning. In 2021, at the age of 99, Phyllis made the decision to move into Harold Lodge, where one month later she celebrated her 100th birthday. This year, when Phyllis woke up on her 102nd birthday, she was showered with birthday cards and gifts. Travelling from as far as Scotland, Phyllis's family couldn't wait to spend her birthday doing all of her favourite things. In the morning, singer and performer Gemma Richens serenaded Phyllis while she and her family sang and danced along to some of her favourite songs. A popular music teacher has retired after 40 years of teaching at the same school he attended as a pupil in Coventry. Dave Barrett stepped down from his role at Foxford School in Longford on July the 21st. Dave grew up in Coventry and went to Little Heath Primary School. He was employed by Foxford School in 1983, having previously studied there from the age of 11. He described his time at the secondary school as amazing, with highlights including attending Notting Hill Carnival and Foxford Fun Days. Students from years gone by have reminisced about their own experiences, describing the 59-year-old as a legend. 
Speaking to Coventry Live, Dave said, I've always been music mad. I've loved music all the time, and in my early teens I got involved with the Phase 1 Steel Orchestra. I used to play in the Steel Band and think that that's what started off my tutoring students. So my first job was as a music tutor at the Coventry School of Music. Foxford was one of the schools I visited in 1983, so my life has been all about teaching music. Dave said he had an amazing time teaching at Foxford School. He said, it's been a great experience. I think one of its qualities was relationships with students and staff have always been a big deal. It's been a great community experience. It's been amazing and I've taught generations as well. Dave shared some of his fondest memories from his decades-long career at Foxford School. He said, I had the opportunity to take 15 students to perform at the Notting Hill Carnival a few years ago and they performed with Kinetica Bloco. Also, during our Foxford Fun Days, we've had members of the specials perform for us, such as Neville Staple, Linville Golding, and Hazel O'Connor too. We even had Atomic Kitten and Peter Andre. Dave will now be taking a well-earned break, with plans to soak up the sun in Brazil. He said, I'm really excited about going to Rio de Janeiro in November. I'll be linked up with a lot of the samba schools, so it's a holiday but also professional development. He added, I'll be working with Coventry Music and Sound Lab lab in the city. I've also got a project with the Coventry and Warwickshire Youth Orchestra, so I'm still going to be busy. A popular Coventry park will get a new accessible toilet for people with disabilities, allowing more of the public to come and visit. The War Memorial Park, known for its cafes, gardens and annual events, is visited by some 400,000 people per year. But these features aren't available to everyone and will be opened up to more people once a new Changing Places toilet is installed, according to a council report. This type of toilet has more facilities than the standard accessible loo, including an adult-sized changing table, hoist system and extra space for carers. It meets the needs of people with severe disabilities and conditions affecting movement, according to the Changing Places campaign. Without this kind of toilet, people end up being changed on toilet floors, putting them and their loved ones at risk. There are fewer than 2,000 of Changing Place facilities in the UK and only six in Coventry. But Coventry City Council is planning to almost double the number of changing places toilets in the city by next spring. The authority has been given 260k of government funding, which must be used to install the facilities by March 2024. As well as War Memorial Park, the toilets will be installed at the Albany Theatre, the Tesco Arena, Shop Mobility and Coombe Abbey Park. The council report comes ahead of a meeting next week to approve plans for the new toilet in the War Memorial Park opposite the pavilion. Coventry councillors on the council's shareholder committee, acting as trustees of the park, will take the decision. Officers recommend it goes ahead, referring to the range of people who will be able to use the park as a result. Installation of a changing places facility at the War Memorial Park will mean an increased range of people who will be able to start using the venue and accessing social and cultural opportunities 
which were previously unavailable to them. This will include people with profound and multiple learning disabilities, people with conditions that may affect their movement, including cerebral palsy, multiple sclerosis, motor neurone disease, people with head injuries or severe spinal injuries, people living with stroke, and older people who require assistance. Households are being warned that bin strikes across Coventry are inevitable after talks collapsed. Unite says that it will be announcing strike action in due course after talks with the City Council crumbled on July the 31st. It comes almost a year after a seven-month fight for better pay and working conditions hit collections across the city. That forced the Council to open temporary bin drop-off sites as well as arranging a waste collection contract with Tom White Waste to collect waste. The industrial action was eventually solved, but now the rows are up to it again. This time it's over a move to scrap a condition that allows refuse workers to leave work when collection rounds are finished, rather than stay until the end of the working day. Last week, bin workers voted for fresh, fresh strikes, and the union says it was prepared to negotiate with the council to prevent any walkouts, but this collapsed. Unite National Lead Officer One Kassab said, Unite went into talks with an open mind and was prepared to negotiate. Unfortunately, rather than talk, the City Council issued ultimatums and threats and refused to negotiate in any meaningful way. It's clearly intent on disregarding labour principles and forcing wages and terms and conditions downwards for both the refuse workers and its other staff. Negotiations have collapsed and Unite will be announcing strike action in due course. Coventry Live contacted Coventry City Council about the talks yesterday and the looming threat of industrial action and is awaiting a response. The latest row is about a move to scrap a condition that allows refuse workers to leave work when collections rounds are finished rather than stay until the end of the working day. The City Council says it aims to minimise disruption. The move comes after GMB launched around 200 equal pay claims against the council. It claims the male-dominated refuse service has benefited from the condition, while female members of staff in other council departments have not. Council bosses fear equal pay claims could end up costing the local authority tens of millions of pounds if action is not taken as soon as possible, something which could result in cuts to services. A spokesman for Coventry City Council said, we totally disagree with their stance. Coventry City rolled out the red carpet for one of its oldest supporters, who went to his first game in 1936. Mac M. Muckley is 95, and has been a loyal fan of the Sky Blues for decades, but was finding it harder to attend matches due to his mobility. So club sponsor XL Motors stepped in and invited Mac to join their guests in the Plattingham Hospitality Suite for the team's match against Hull City. Mac, who lives at Austin Heath Retirement Village in Warwick, was taken to the Coventry Building Society Arena by the village's well-being navigator, Marie Edwardmans. Mac, who first watched his favourite team play in a match against Torquay United, age nine, was treated to a silver service lunch before the game, which he watched from prime seats. He was introduced at the lunch by a former Coventry footballer who explained he was the oldest supporter present that day.
A landmark bank building will be undergoing a huge refurbishment in Coventry. Lloyds Bank confirmed that the branch on High Street will remain closed until August. A full refurbishment will be taking place at the city centre's branch, which was built in 1932. Lloyds said there will be a knowledge bar, as well as brand new ATMs. It will reopen to the public on Thursday, August 24th. Construction has already begun, with plans to create freestanding meeting pods, refurbish the toilets and replace the existing flooring. It's understood the walls and ceilings will also be painted. Customers have been advised to use the nearby branches on Daventry Road and Folsell Road. Alternatively, people can use telephone, mobile and online banking, as well as the post office. A spokesman for Lloyds Bank said, We're investing in our Coventry High Street branch, and once the refurbishment's complete in August, customers will have access to a new knowledge bar for informal chats, alongside private meeting spaces, ATMs and other banking services. Coventry City FC has announced plans to open a brand new store at the CBS Arena. Construction has already begun, and the space will be fully transformed in the coming months, they said. CGIs have shown what the new store will look like with a wide range of products on offer, including kit, training wear and leisure wear, plus many other items as CCFC seek to broaden its retail offering. It will also have a non-match day ticket office. Customers can find the soon-to-be-open store in the corner of the south and west stand of the CBS Arena. Owner Doug King said the opening date will be confirmed shortly. Supporters shared their delight for the plans for the brand new store at the arena. Dave Pinner said, It seems like we are starting to be run like a proper club and business, and long may it continue. Doug King, owner and executive chairman, said, Creating a new superstore will greatly increase the breadth and quality of our retail offering to supporters both during the week and on match days as well. The space is perfect for this, and the location near the player's entrance will really add to the match day experience and create a new focal point on our match days. Razul Day, head of retail at Coventry City, added, We are delighted to reveal plans for the new superstore at the CBS Arena. Increasing the range of our retail products, as well as the quality, has been one of my priorities since arriving at the club, and moving to this new space will allow us to do that, as well as providing a higher quality retail experience for our supporters on match days and through the week. Travellers have been evicted after setting up camp at a popular park in Coventry. Caravans were seen at Stoke Heath Park on July the 29th. The number of vehicles were seen parked on the land in Stoke Heath on Saturday and Sunday, July the 29th and 30th. Coventry City Council confirmed that the group were told to leave the site by 9am on Monday, July the 31st. Damage has been done to the gate, which now, must now be repaired, officials say. The site has now been vacated, said Coventry City Council. Data from a Freedom of Information request also revealed that the cost of removing unauthorised encampments from public land has tripled over the past five years, according to Coventry City Council. A local authority spokesman previously said that they were aware of ongoing issues and will do whatever they can to protect access to public grounds. 
A spokesman for Coventry City Council said notice was served yesterday, Sunday, July the 30th, by the police for them to leave by 9am this morning, Monday, July the 31st. It's now been vacated and will be putting in measures to protect the site until the gate is repaired. A company is appealing for donations of empty milk cartons so that they can be turned into medals. The Team Recycle Project, run by the Coventry Trophy Centre, is making medals for the Oslo Marathon in Norway from recycled plastic milk bottles. Most of the containers were collected from students across the city, but the firm says the summer holidays mean supplies are now dwindling. They must complete the project by the 31st of August. The firm has been running the project in schools across Coventry and Warwickshire and was contacted by the organisers of the marathon to provide an eco-friendly option on a mass scale. A plastic bottle that can hold four pints of milk can create one whole medal, and so far they have collected more than 25,000 bottles. However, to meet their target, the firm said they still need about 30,000 pints worth of plastic in time for the marathon on the 16th of September. The response from the children, taking responsibility and taking ownership of their recycling, has been fantastic, said Stuart Giddings, one of the Coventry Trophy Centre's co-directors. Mr Giddings, a former Coventry City player, added, their recycling could end up in Norway on the finish line. If you had asked me six months ago, I wouldn't have believed it. It has been a crazy journey. A discovery of 50-year-old apple blossom trees on an abandoned allotment in Coventry has led to a preservation project. Researchers at Coventry University came across 11 trees while walking around Charterhouse Park, looking for somewhere to have a community tree nursery. It's thought the trees are heritage varieties, and now the university has begun a project to preserve them. The allotments were possibly created in the 1930s, but abandoned in the 1980s. Liz Trenchard, Assistant Professor for Research at the Centre for Agroecology, Water and Resilience, said heritage varieties were bred before World War II. There are a number of interesting local Warwickshire varieties, including the Wyken Pippin, and it's likely that veteran apple trees at the Charterhouse, Street, Charterhouse site are older heritage varieties, she said. Many are over 50 years old. According to the local community, the allotments have not been cultivated for many years. The researchers have mapped the trees and sent off samples for variety identification. They had hoped to find the Wyken Pippin, but instead tests revealed they found a variety linked to it, Trenchard said. Preserving the trees is important to save their genetic diversity, as more and more apples are being imported, with a reliance in the UK on fewer varieties, she added. With climate change happening, we're interested to see what traits the trees have, and maybe they're able to survive drought or different diseases better. Researchers are now working to develop the project further and apply for funding to take a community-based approach to locate and preserve heritage apple varieties found throughout Coventry. Outlook News. Thanks very much to Elaine um, and myself for the news.
just to uh, continue with one or two quick notices, um, the um, sunrise time this week is 5.28 a.m., sunset of 8.56 p.m. Um, I've just been handed a, a short note uh, to read out to you. The consultation period for the closure of railway ticket offices has been extended to the 4th of September. Now, if you need more details on that, uh, please contact Resource Centre. Speaking of which, Hugh is here in the studio. So here he is with this week's Resource Centre News. Thank you very much. We should just say about that, there's a, a petition that you can sign online. Um, and The address is hugely long. So what we suggest is that you will give that address uh, and the link to uh, people in reception. So either Heather or Carol. Um, and if you would like to add your name to the petition to prevent uh, the ticket offices, particularly in Coventry, closing, um, then um, that will be a way of doing so. There are other um, methods as well. Um, Elaine here has been distributing postcards uh, that, were, uh, ex that express objections to the plan. Um, there are more on the way, are there not? Well, I would expect them to do a reprint because the date has changed and they ran out of the others. Good. Okay, so that's fine. So it's a very important issue. Um, everybody I've spoken to here has said that they would be absolutely lost if, uh, without the ticket office um, at Coventry Station. And given that it is a major city, uh, it seems nutty that it should be one of the ones that, that is earmarked for closure. It's said to be one of the busiest railway lines yeah. in the country, that, the Coventry-London yeah. link. And it, it, it's just insane, but there we are. Um, I'm sure, um, given the strength of feeling on that, I think that, you know, it's likely that hopefully, well, we'll cross our fingers, you know, that, that we can um, effect a change there. So, um, here's some good news. I'm going on holiday. Oh, I told you this last week. Um, good for you. <laughs> it's very good for me. Uh, so uh, today is Wednesday. I'm leaving on Friday and I won't be back for two weeks and a day. Uh, so um, uh, I'll be back in the office on the 21st of August which happens to be my wedding anniversary, I think, actually, number oh. 13. Um, and then uh, we've got, and Rosie's going to be away next week as well, uh, so you won't see her. We've got various people going away um, over the next um, couple of weeks, or well, well, uh, a month or so, uh, it being the season. Uh, so uh, might be a little light on stuff every now and again. Um, so be, please bear with us. We do have to have a rest from you lovely people from time to time. <laughs> I don't mean it like that, but we do, you know, we do have to recharge our batteries. So, uh, last week I mentioned as well that uh, we are having a little struggle with our minibuses. Uh, it's only because we've got so many people now who are coming to the centre um, from different parts of the city. So uh, I would really like to encourage anybody who thinks they can uh, to use the on-demand bus system by the, uh, which is being offered by West Midlands Transport. It's very easy, actually. You can phone up. There's a number you can phone up and order a bus and it, it's unlikely to come directly to your house, but it'll come to a place near there. So if you're reasonably mobile, reasonably confident about getting to a point where the bus can pick you up, um, uh, it's, it can be quite a, a good option. I've seen a couple of people start to use it uh, this week um, a bit more, and uh, they've not had any problems at all. But it does go to a ho your house. It's not 
always that you'd have to walk somewhere? No, it's not always, but it depends on where your house is, for example. So there are some people who, you know, who have to go to the end of the road right. uh, to get to, to get to it, yes, uh, to get it, the bus. Uh, but if they can get to your house, then they, yeah, they, they will. Then they will. Yes. Um, Anyway, it's definitely worth uh, having a look at that. We can help you. We can give you some more information if you want. Uh, but you can phone up the company and they will uh, take your booking. I think you might have to pre-register. Uh, if you're uh, super duper on your phones, there is an app uh, that you can use as well that will tell you where your bus is and how long it will take to get to you, etc., etc. Like buses, uh, you know there are you know there's sometimes subject to delays, particularly in in wet weather. But for the most part, in the middle of the day, um, they tend, which is when we operate, um, the service tends to be fairly okay. Uh, so, if you're so minded to have a go at that, and the, look, the advantage to you is it's cheaper. It's one pound fifty for a journey, um, uh, and therefore three pound return, <clears throat> as opposed to six pound that we have to charge. So. You know, it might be, uh, it might also save you a bit of money here and there. With which you can buy extra raffle tickets. With which you can buy extra raffle tickets. Oh, you're brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> raffle tickets are on sale now. Uh, they are £1 a ticket or £5 for a book of five. That's amazing value, isn't it? Um, so uh, you get uh, the first prize is £250 cash donated by our very good friend Jeff Harris from Coventry Plumbing and Heating Supplies. Uh, and there is a fantastic meat tray uh, from Cumberland Meats. And many, many other really very good prizes this year. So uh, we'll be drawing that um, uh, in the early part of September. So uh, uh, get it, come in, buy your tickets. Importantly, grab a whole bunch of tickets and sell them to other people. Get them to write their names on it and give you the money. Uh, and then you can bring the money in and the stubs. And uh, the tickets will be entered into the draw. Um, now, uh, we were just looking at various things that were going on around the place. And... Uh, those of you who attend the Macular Society uh, meeting every month may well be aware of this already, but others who don't go to that meeting may not be. Um, there is a Macular Disease Conference uh, taking place um, in Manchester on September the 16th. Well, that might be a bit hard for people to get to, uh, but um, what they are doing, September the 16th is a Saturday, what they are doing is they're broadcasting the whole thing online. Uh, and it starts at 9.15am uh, and goes on till 4pm, so that's a long day to be sitting in front of a computer or, or a tablet. Mm. But, you know, there may be elements of that that you would be interested in. So if you want help in signing up, um, if you're interested in doing that, then uh, we will, you know, we will give you the details and, and see if we can work that out for you. Um, so that is it. Okay, um, that is it for me for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to sign off. Uh, Joe will be here next week. And or Coody. I'm trying to persuade them to do a double act uh, for for you next week. Uh, so, because <laughs> they both need to... <laughs> it's good for them to have a bit of practice mm -hmm. doing, uh, doing the talking newspaper. So, uh, and I will see you uh, when I get back, when I shall be um, bronzed and... Uh, well, I'm hoping bronze than not pink, and really. Wi and wind up. And, and wind up, oh, yes, yes, exactly. And rested, absolutely. Okay. Okay. And I saw Joe's picture somewhere. She'd been to London? 
She has, yes. Joe went to a conference um, in London. We are, we w- have been awarded, or we're part of the Global's Make Some Noise campaign. I talked about this a um, yes. couple of months ago on the on the Talking newspaper. And Global, if you don't know, they're a, a sort of a media publishing empire. In fact, they are the people who own Classic FM and various other um, organisations, mm-hmm. uh, radio and stations and things. Uh, and they uh, select 40 charities only in a year and um, they support them uh, so we're uh, guaranteed £30,000 from them um, uh, at the at the end of the year so it'll be just at uh, the end of the financial year I think which is just going to be absolutely brilliant so um, so uh, Joe was going down and taking taking part in an event that they were um, they were offering to do with you know how to promote social media and everything because we need to do more of that so Oh, well, she'll be well-versed for next week. She, she, will, she will do. I do hope so. So, uh, all right, that's me signing off and saying ta-ra. Thanks very much, Hugh, and uh, have a lovely holiday. Thank you. And now for sport, here is Sarah. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, listeners. And first of all, let me start with a sort of apology for last week. I know Sheila said I was away. Well, I wasn't away on holiday, but I was away from the studio because I was part way through my fourth consecutive course of antibiotics and I did not feel a very well bunny. Anyway, be very afraid, folks. I'm back now as are the mighty Coventry City. Yes, Coventry start their season on Sunday. Yes, I did say that Sunday this week with an away match at Leicester. Now, the kick-off time is 12pm. So if you're going to catch it on whatever television channel you find it on or on CWR like me, 12 p.m. kickoff. The first home match is against Middlesbrough on the following Saturday. That's August the 12th. Again, that's an early kickoff at 12:30. Although before then, on the Wednesday night, I think that's the 9th. At the usual evening time of a quarter to 8pm, we face AFC Wimbledon away in the Caraboa Cup. So the season's certainly ramping up with a plum. Now, I thought I'd give a bit of audio description here to our new home shirt. We've reverted to the old traditional sort of sky blue and white quite wide vertical stripes and we have the rather nice logo across the chest it's not very big it says king and i think the second word is shines i do know that king of course is the firm owned by doug king who in turn owns us but it's very nicely done but it's got a big k obviously for king and a big S, but as in the last word, the last letter of shines. So, all in all, I think that's quite a good one. Now, 
we have actually been quite busy because we've been playing quite a lot of friendlies. Started off away to Forest Green Rovers and we won nil four. Then we were away to Shrewsbury. Now I can't actually find out that result because according to the website it says for all the friendlies nil nil and I know they weren't. Anyway, the third match was against MK Dons and we won one goal to five. And my friend tells me their one goal was a penalty which we conceded virtually straight after the start of the match. But apparently our coach had been held up in the traffic. So we got there very late and literally had no time to do a warm-up. It was just off the coach, on with the kit, out on the field. Get playing, lads. Anyway, we finished the series of friendlies with an away match against Exeter, who we beat again. One goal to two. My only sort of mmm in all of this is that all of those teams are either in League 2 or League 1, i.e. one or two leagues below us. But what Mark Robbins, our manager, seems to have been doing is using these um, pre-season matches, as they're called, to size up who he's bought, how people fit in, you know, what our team looks like. And my gosh, have we got some new names for me to introduce to you. I mean, just looking at the team sheet that started at Exeter, we had Brad Collins in goal, a Bobby Thomas, a Joel De Silva, Tashuhari Sakamoto. Now, I know we bought him and we're rather excited about him because although he's quite small for a footballer, I believe he's five foot five or six, he is a Japanese international. So hopefully that looks good. And then we have an Ellis Sims, but I'll say a little bit more about him later on in my and finally slot. And now, over down in New Zealand and Australia, we have the Women's World Cup talking about football carrying on. I have to say, it wasn't a very convincing start for England against Haiti. But the result was okay. We came out with a 1-0 win. Uh, It was slightly more rounded performance, I felt, when we played Denmark, although again the score was only 1-0 and my gosh the Danes came close to scoring and equalising in one of the closing minutes when they hit the woodwork. Still, at time of recording, which is Monday, we play China tomorrow to see who gets in to the next round. Now, this is the ninth appearance of the Women's World Cup. Started in 1991 
And of the eight occurrences so far, America have won four of them. Mm. And Germany have won two. Although I did hear last night that Germany lost. Oh well, come on Serena and you women. Get going, you can do it. We want to see you in that final. Well, the Ashes cricket concluded yesterday. You know, the Ashes, named after that um, hypothetical pot of ashes from the late 1800s when Australia beat England at the Oval and apparently the ashes is meant to be the bales. But hey-ho, it doesn't exist anyway, but it makes for a good cricket tournament against the Aussies. Now, the women has already drawn their Ashes series 3-3, meaning that Australia catch the Ashes, because when it's a draw, the team that already has the Ashes from previous competition gets to keep them. Now, the men's side was slightly more interesting because the last test, which was in Manchester, had been, believe it or not, rain off with England in a very good position. So, you know, England were kind of claiming it as a sort of hollow victory, but it wasn't on the scoreboard. So, going into this final match, it was two to them and one to us. Now, both sides batted their first innings and did roughly the same. Then England went in and did roughly the same, plus over a hundred more, and set Australia quite a good target to chase of nearly 400. Unfortunately... Their batsmen got stuck in and seemed to be clanking up the scoreboard. But then, rain stopped play on Monday lunchtime and they didn't resume until half past four, with Australia needing around 150, but they'd still got seven wickets left, so... But then... It all went rather well, as one after another, they were all run out, bowled out, you name it out, and sweet words to an English person's ears. Oh dear, Australia are facing a mini collapse. So, in the end, England won by 49 runs and squared the series Although, again, sadly, Australia get to retain the ashes. And it was rather fitting that the very last ball of the game was bowled by Stuart Broad, who two days previously had announced his retirement from the game. Stuart has been a great long-serving batsman, a uh, bowler, for England and has taken over 600 wickets. Meanwhile, over in South Africa, the women in very short skirts with those weird letters on the back 
are playing in the Netball World Cup. Well done to England, Scotland and Wales, all of whom have progressed past the initial stages and are now in the real competition. To be truthful, I might start watching if England get to the semis, particularly if we play Australia. And then in Japan, we've had the Swimming World Championships or Aquatic Championships, to give it its proper title. Great Britain this time did rather well with eight medals, meaning that going into Paris next year with the Olympics, they are rather confident because many of our top swimmers, such as our Adam Peaty, weren't there but will be there all being well in Paris. Gone are the days when the only ones who could swim were Australia. Sorry to any Aussies who are listening. But then in Belgium, a bit nearer home, we had the F1 Grand Prix and had to laugh because the sprint race, which is the race on Saturday over a shorter distance, was delayed due to torrential rain with a major drain flooding. Anyway, the race followed the similar procession behind the man from Holland, Max Verstappen. He now leads the championship by more than 150 points and he has won 10 of the F1s this season. Oh, the only good thing was that our Lewis was fourth. Now, and finally, I mentioned one of our new players was an Ellis Sims. I'm talking about Coventry City now when I say we. Well, my friend rang me up and left a message. Oh, we signed that guy from Everton, Ellis Sims. And I thought she said Ellie Simmons. And I'm thinking, okay, where's she going to swim? And I quite decided she was going to ballroom dance onto the pitch every match with the referee. But that's just my warped sense of humour. Anyway, folks, don't have nightmares. Have a brilliant week. And I will hopefully see you next week. Bye. And now here's Dave with your postbag. This is Postbag. Join in the discussion. Hello and welcome to your Postbag. I'm standing here in Wiltshire this time and we're just been looking at a white horse which uh, seems to have a thin body and a thin head and I'm standing on this hill and no one else around and, it's fan- and the scenery is fantastic okay so uh, I wonder what adventures you've been on please let us know in postbag and here you are here's your postbag we were actually going to my cousin's funeral in Wiltshire Derek was a farmer but going anywhere with Graham usually turns into a great adventure. I'm so pleased to say that no sooner 
then I've asked you to tell us of your adventures. I receive a letter from Robert Franklin, passed on to me via Christine via email. So welcome again to Robert to postbag. Robert Franklin and Tony Irish go to Tinmouth. On Monday the 17th of April, Tony Irish and Robert Franklin went to Tinmouth for five days. Tony went on to Bristol for the Exol reunion for two days after getting on separate trains. Their family met up in Birmingham New Street. When they arrived at Tinmouth, they bought their train tickets for Dawlish and Liscard, I hope I've pronounced that uh, properly, by getting a taxi to Seaway Guesthouse. On Tuesday, they went to Dawlish, did plenty of walking and sightseeing, and on Wednesday they went to Lisgard, went to an information centre and looked at some old things from the old days. We then went to Weatherspoons for dinner and then went back to Tinmouth by going to pack ready for Bristol. On Friday we had to make sure we had our mobiles as we kept losing them in the room. On Friday afternoon, Tony and Robert went around Bristol. Then on Saturday, Tony met his nephew, Arfon, at 10 a.m. till 2 p.m. while Robert went around Bristol. They all met at the hotel and went to Weatherspoons for dinner. Then we all went on the toot bus. Sounds fun. And we went around Bristol, did half of it, then went on the Clifton Suspension Bridge. We then went for a walk with Tony and Afron. Robert would like to thank Tony for the wonderful holiday and would like to say that Tony was good company, Robert Franklin. Thank you so much, Robert, for making the effort in writing to Postbag and so clearly printed. Back home, Graham is concerned about me paying £2 before 9.30am instead of £1.50. I'm sorry to hear that Dave Monks had to pay £2 on the bus. Um, I'm pretty sure you are a, a travel concession user, um, um, Dave. You, you're above retirement age anyway. Um, what you actually paid was a standard single fare, which everybody has to pay, um, if they haven't got a travel concession, whilst the fares are being subsidised by the government. Now, you are entitled, everybody who's got either a senior citizen's travel card or a disabled person's travel card, you can pay, you can travel on National Express buses only before 9.28 in the morning for £1.50, providing you show your travel card. Um, I'm only guessing, but maybe you didn't do that, Dave. But you have to show the driver your concession card. You don't have to scan it, because the scanning machine won't scan it before 9.28 in the morning. But you have to show it to your driver. Put pound fifty in the machine and grab your ticket from the uh, ticket box. And it's as simple as that. But I only hope you know where to get off, because I'm finding more than half the buses I travel on which have got stop announcements the stop announcements aren't working. And I'm fed up to keep complaining about it. I just get the standard letter telling me that, uh, thanking, thanking me for my feedback, and they will pass the information on to the garage engineer, but it doesn't improve at all. 
Thank you very much, Graham. I tend to forget about having to pay before 9.30am, and when I'm on the bus, I tend to fumble around for the money. That's probably where the mistake came in. Uh, I will try and tell West Midlands Transport about not switching the destination announcements on that Sarah had previously pointed out. No problems with transport for Julia. Her entertainment is provided where she lives. Here is the latest report entitled Fun and Games with Wendy the Warden. It all happened in the community room. First we played shuffleboard. We had to push a small disc into a hole. It's a bit like posting a pizza, but the disc was smaller than a pizza. I scored five. Then we played darts. Can you imagine me with sharp pointed darts? Well, you don't have to have nightmares. We had special Velcro darts so he can start breathing again. <laughs> uh, I got the high score. I scored 260 and stuck a dart in Wendy the Warden's bum. I suppose. I wonder if that counts as a bull. Anyway, we are going to try to get the games into the next Olympics. My friend John says he's very good at pinning the tail on the donkey, but the donkey doesn't like it. That's a shame because he would look very good with a gold medal. I must go now. I have a hot date tonight. Lots of love, Julia. Well, I wonder if you'll be talking about the hot date in postbag. Wendy is a lovely, kind person, and she sometimes plays table tennis in the club, with me in Cowden Social Club on a Monday. Edwina likes gardening, and she tells you a use for those presentation bags, like the ones the secret prizes were in for the tombola at the resource centre, Summer Fate. Here's Edwina. Hi everybody, it's Edwina. I bet a lot of you have been trying to relax in the sun. But how about those thousands and thousands of people that absolutely adore their garden? and are busy making their garden beautiful. I thought I'd give you a very unusual tip that would help you to keep your plants lovely held in place. A lot of the gift bags that we give Christmas presents and our birthday presents etc in always have lovely handles and a lot of those handles have got a little metal piece which just threads through the hole and makes the handle on the bag. If you take those off the bag you can shave them. I have actually got one here to show David. It is a purple satin ribbon which has come off one of my gift bags. You can get string ones as well and you can shave them because they're all different sizes according to the bag sizes. Keep them in a drawer and you can tie some of your roses back or your flowers to stem. Keep smiling everybody. Bye. Thank you Edwina. 
and Edwina and myself have often been to the touch tours, at the pantomime touch tours of the Belgrade Theatre, and this year it's Cinderella. Now, uh, the person who helps set up the uh, pantomime touch tours, along with the pantomime dame Ian Lachlan, is Eric Sace, and he did some wonderful things for blind people, audio description in the uh, in the theatre is is one of them as well but uh, the latest news though uh, following uh, Sylvia's inquiry that I meet up with uh, the singing group the Nostalgics and uh, I phoned up Jean Sace and sadly he has had to go into a home because he keeps falling down and sorry about that we send him our best wishes and we finished postbag this week as we began in Wiltshire. Graham and I climbed to the top of Salisbury Hill because Peter Gabriel wrote and sang a song about it. Tell us if you've ever been inspired to go somewhere because of a song about it. That's it, and you'll find out on top of Salisbury Hill there were some Swedish fans as well. And they said they would happily swap Abba for Peter Gabriel. <laughs> so I asked Graham about Salisbury Hill. Uh, Peter Gabriel uh, wrote a song called Salisbury Hill, and his studios are based in near uh, in Box, a village called Box, or the area called Box. And there's a Box Hill there. Yeah. But we can see a fabulous view of Bath, and there are some Swedish uh, Peter. Gabriel fans you've just been speaking to. Okay, so let us know where you've been. Okay? Try and keep Postbag going. Thank you very much, and that's all from Postbag. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. And thanks to Dave with Postbag. Margaret, this week, looking at some of Coventry's great treasures, is sort of looking at St John the Baptist Church in Swan Street, one of uh, Coventry's most important churches. Built on oak piles driven into the old lake bed, the Babu Laku, St John stands around 14 inches above the water in the appropriately named Fleet Street, named from the old English flut, meaning to float. It was built on ground given by Queen Isabella in 1344 to the Guild of St John to build a chapel so priests could pray for her soul and the soul of her murdered husband, Edward II. In 1357, it was served by two priests. One was Robert de Warham, who lived in a hermitage attached to it. As the building grew, it took in more priests, first six, then nine, and in 1461, twelve. The church was used and maintained by the United Guild of the Holy Trinity, based in St Mary's Hall. In their day, there were five altars, the High Altar, 
and altars dedicated to St John the Baptist, the Virgin Mary, St Catherine and the Holy Trinity. These were the four guilds that formed the Trinity Guild. In 1546, the commission preparing for the guild's dissolutions reported that Bablake employed nine priests who celebrated divine service daily and had their own rooms within the college precincts. The college took up the area of the present quadrangle. Attached to this college was also a school maintained by the Trinity Guild. In December 1547, an act was passed for the suppression of all colleges, chapels, chantries and guilds. Holy Trinity Guild was suppressed and their church, St John's, and its contents were granted to the corporation for the penny a year. It was put to various uses and from 1607 occasional lectures and services continued. It was used as a prison for Scottish prisoners during the Second Civil War. It was also used as a market, stretch house and other unsavoury uses until it became derelict. In 1734, it became the parochial church of the new parish of St. John. The church was restored in 1841 and again 1868-76. to During this period, the exterior of grey sandstone was clad with local red sandstone, completely changing the look of the building. The tale about St John's being the origin of the phrase sent to Coventry only dates from the 1930s. Here's Nigel with an obituary for Coventry-born Vince Hill, who died recently. Um, and uh, I remember Vince Hill at one time was quite a big star. A former coal miner, an apprentice baker, Hill had been a member of a vocal group called the Raindrops in the uh, late 1950s before striking out on a solo career. He had his first hit on his own in 1962 with the Rivers Run Dry and followed up with singles like Take Me to Your Heart Again in 1966, a cover of Edith Piaf's signature song La Vie en Rose, and Love Letters in the Sand in 1967. His treacly rendition of Vice sold more than half a million copies and earned him a platinum disc. With a voice once likened to crushed velvet, Hill was one of the last old-style crooners to meet with chart success, employing an easy-listening singing style in the manner of Bing Crosby and Perry Como. Although his version of Edelweiss bounded up the charts in March 1967, he was pipped for the post of number one by Release Me, sung by another British crooner, Engelbert Humperdinck. The son of a greengrocer, Vince Brian Hill, was born in Coventry on April 16, 1934, and attended Hen Lane Secondary Modern School in the suburb of Holbrooks. Leaving at 15, he began singing in a local pub and social club, and a year later, on holiday in Margate, won a talent contest and started singing lessons, supporting himself by working variously down the pit at the nearby Kersley Colliery, selling soft drinks door-to-door and starting an apprenticeship as a pastry cook. At 19, he saw an advert in The Melody Maker for a vocalist with a band of the Royal Corps of Signals, based at Catterick in North Yorkshire, where he did his national service. 
On his discharge, he sang with vocal groups such as the Four Others and the Raindrops, who established themselves as a close harmony quartet with regular radio and television appearances. By the early 1960s, the group was being featured on the popular radio show Parade of the Pops with Bob Miller and the Millerman, but Hill had set his sights on television, and he began by singing advertising jingles for Shell and Carl's Cornflakes commercials. He was also the voice behind the Drink a Pint of Milk a Day campaign. Determined to become a solo artist, in 1962, Hill released his first single, The Rivers Run Dry, which led to a regular spot on ITV's Stars and Garces show the following year. Signed to the Columbia label in 1965, he made ten studio albums featuring standards and show tunes and enjoyed a string of hit singles including Roses of Picardy and Looking Round, and you'll never find me there, as well as his million-selling signature tune, Edelweiss. As a songwriter, Hill worked with his musical partner, Ernie Dunstall, on numbers that featured on his albums as B-sides to his singles. In 1973, he hosted his first BBC TV series, They Sold a Million, and two years later switched record labels to CBS, now Sony Music. By the 1980s, however, his recording career was in decline, and he was concentrating on live performances, touring British venues, and entertaining on cruise ships. An admirer of Margaret Thatcher during the 1979 general election campaign, Hill sang Hello Maggie to the tune of Jerry Herman's Hello Dolly, with Lulu as a rally in which Mrs. Thatcher addressed Conservative trade unionists. Hello Maggie, well hello Maggie, now you're really on the road to number 10, you're going strong Maggie, won't be long Maggie, till you turn the key. For the 1983 campaign he recorded It's Maggie for Me. She was very honest and her tenacity was a great thing, he told an interviewer in the Henley Standard. She was determined to get what she wanted, she meant what she said and she said what she meant. Hill was invited to dinner at 10 Downing Street and had drinks with her in her private quarters. She showed me where James Callahan had kept all his milk bottles. Between 1984 and 1993, he hosted Vince Hill's Solid Gold Music Show on Radio 2, and in 1988 made his debut as a television presenter on the short-lived ITV daytime chat show Gas Street. After playing the composer Ivan Novello in the stage musical My Dearest Ivor in 1990, Hill recorded an album of Novello's songs. On stage, he starred as the cowardly lion in the Royal Shakespeare Company's production of The Wizard of Oz. In 2013, he donated his musical archive to Coventry University's Performing Arts Department, but Hill's later life was marred by illness and loss. In his 70s, he suffered two bouts of cancer, and in 2014, while he was nursing his wife Anne through degenerative lung disease, their only child, Athol, died from a heroin overdose at the age of 42. Annie was secretary to the show business impresario Tito Burns when she and Hill met in the late 1950s, and it was Annie who persuaded Hill to leave the raindrops and pursue his own solo career. Vince Hill married Annie in 1959, and she died in 2016. Vince Hill was born on the 16th of April 1934, 
and died on the 22nd of July 2023. And here's a piece about uh, dogs, rowdy canines in fact, written by Donna Ferguson and read by Sue. It's a common enough sight in the large, securely enclosed dog park. Let off their leads and given a license to play, small dogs and big dogs racing up to one another, gleefully wagging their tails, the bald ones attempting a judicious sniff of their new acquaintance's most intimate body parts, the young ones embarking on a zoomy together around the perimeter. I've seen German Shepherds playing with Jack Russells, Huskies playing with miniature Schnauzers, Lurchers and Rottweilers playing with Bichons and Cockapoos, says Pat Hurd, a dog charity worker who recently persuaded her local council to create one of the UK's first public dog parks in her hometown of Cramlington, Northumberland. Now other councils are sniffing out the advantages of the idea as well. The latest is Hillingdon Council in West London, after a petition for an enclosed dog play park to be created inside one of the council's local parks, received 100 signatures. This well thought out proposal, if introduced, would put Hillingdon on the map as an innovative council that was thinking outside the box, said Hillingdon councillor Rita Shandal at a recent council meeting. The move to hive off council-owned spaces for dogs has been sparked by what now appears to be a growing backlash against badly behaved dogs in the UK's parks and nature reserves after a sharp rise in dog ownership during the pandemic. Then, social distancing and lockdown restrictions prevented many new dog owners from adequately socialising their pets or taking them to training classes leaving behind a legacy of unruly animals ever since. Last week, Cambridge Council more than doubled the number of open green spaces in the city where dogs must be kept on a lead to help protect wildlife during the bird nesting season, while Liverpool Council last year banned dogs from more than 70 playgrounds and sports pitches. Dog owners in urban areas say their needs are not being properly considered by councils that are banning dogs from spaces. Issues like this stoke division within communities, said Dan Jaynes, chair of the Guest Road Area Residents Association in central Cambridge. Dogs need to be exercised off lead, and I commend other councils that are allocating resources for this. He lives near Mill Road Cemetery, a green oasis in the city centre, which is popular with dog owners and now subject to the new restrictions. Having to get into a car to drive to an alternative walking spot is counterproductive and will add to the congestion on the city's roads. Matthew Nelson, a Hlingdon resident, put forward the idea of an enclosed dog area to the council after realising there were no local parks where he could safely let his beagle cross Bertie off the lead to have a good run. I rehomed Bertie in December 2020. During all the Covid restrictions, very few dog trainers were doing group classes for puppies, he said. Owners need dedicated spaces to go to train their dogs off lead, 
and offering such a space in the local Dowding Park would give owners of reactive dogs peace of mind, he said, especially if the council agreed to let the dog park to one owner at a time in half-hour slots for a £2 fee. Designated dog areas in public parks are commonplace in big cities in the US and Canada and can also be found in Milan, Berlin and Paris. But in the UK, most dedicated dog spaces are in privately owned fields in the countryside, which must be rented typically for about £10 an hour. In Cramlington, the council's fenced-in dog park is entirely free to use. Formerly it was an empty green space within Alexandra Park, which already contained a children's playground, skate park and football pitch, all spaces where dogs were not welcome and could be a nuisance. There was clearly a need. Owners wanted somewhere safe they could let their dogs off, said Hurd, a town councillor, who runs Dogs First Animal Rescue. Dogs were encroaching where kids wanted to play. She suggested the idea to her fellow councillors after noticing lots of dogs coming into her rescue shelter with behavioural problems. During Covid an awful lot of people went out and got dogs who hadn't had dogs before and with social distancing they didn't let their dogs off the lead or meet up with other dogs to socialise, she said. Unsocialised dogs can appear to react aggressively to people and other dogs, especially when they are on a lead and unable to run away. Dogs learn to be dogs by playing together off the lead, she said. After a public consultation, the council allocated £20,000 to the park's creation and it opened in March. We're hoping to open another one, said Hurd, who often visits the park with her five pets. So many people have made friends through their dogs making friends with other dogs. We watch the dogs enjoying themselves. You can't help but smile. She helped to design the space to ensure that there are no 90-degree corners where dominant dogs can pin other dogs and make them feel threatened. In a dog park... Dogs realise chasing can be fun. This is taken from the Express and read by Bill, the astonishing story of the US adventurer who claimed to have reached the Earth's northernmost point and the Fleet Street reporter who smelt a rat. It was one of the biggest stories of the new century. In September 1909, American explorer Frederick Cook returned from a two-year expedition during which he claimed to have become the first person in history to reach the North Pole. It would spark an incredible series of scoops that ultimately undermined Cook's claim and sparked an astonishing row that echoes down the ages. The amazing news of Cook's triumph was the media stampede, with correspondents and photographers dispatched post-haste Copenhagen, where the explorer, a physician by training, would heading trumpet his return to civilization. Among them, to cover the story, was former Daily Express man, Philip Gibbs, then 32, and an experienced Fleet Street hand. Waiting in the Danish capital for Cook to arrive, 
has enjoyed one of the more fortuitous breaks in journalistic history. While drinking a coffee, he was introduced to a woman called Dagmar Rasmussen in a cafe after she was pointed out to him as the wife of one of Cook's fellow explorers. Rasmussen revealed that, first thing the following morning, a boat would be leaving Alisnor, some 40 miles northwards, to meet the ship carrying Cook before it reached land. Here was the chance of an exclusive angle on a huge story, and Gibbs grasped it. With no more trains for Ellisnor that evening, and rules against driving at night outside of the city, it's offered a taxi driver a large fee risk a fine and drive him and Rasmussen to the eastern Danish city to catch the boat. Finding a driver who agreed, he made it to the docks, where Gibbs waited nervously while Rasmussen went to ask the director of the boat company if they could find space. The reporter's hopes faded as he watched their conversation from afar, the body language suggesting he was disappointed by what she was being told. He won't take us, Rasmussen told him. Hard luck, said Gibbs. But he will take you, he added quickly. Rasmussen explained the director had been so inundated with requests from friends of the returning explorers that he had decided to refuse them all, for fear of appearing to favour anyone. But, hearing that Gibbs was a journalist, he decided he could give the British reporter a place without causing offence. So, the following morning, Gibbs was on the boat, heading to intercept Cook's ship. As they stopped alongside it, Gibbs climbed up a rope ladder and onto the deck, where he was greeted by a man with an untidy moustache and wearing a shabby-looking suit. Dr. Cook, I believe, he said, as he shook hands with the explorer. So, while the world's journalists were gathered on the quayside, waiting for Cook to arrive, Gibbs was interviewing the man they were all desperate to speak to. And when Cook reached land, and was mobbed by an ecstatic crowd, Gibbs went to an out-of-the-way hotel right up what was the biggest story of his career so far. Yet, as he sat down to write it, Gibbs hesitated. He was troubled by what Cook had told him about leaving his instruments and observations in Greenland to be sent back to America. And there was something about Cook that did not sit comfortably. A hint of evasiveness a quickness to anger when questioned, and a nervousness when he was called to go on deck to wave at the crowd. All these combined in Gibbs's head, and by the time he came to write his article, he firmly believed Cook was not the discoverer of the North Pole, but a rot liar who was perpetrating an audacious fraud. Well, the obvious approach to an article like this would be to simply repeat what Cook had said and describe what it had been like to stand next to him as they approached Copenhagen. He did not want to publicise 
a claim he now believed to be untrue. So, he wrote an article that focused so intently on the question of whether Cook really had reached the pole, it was obvious he thought his claim would not be taken at face value. Gibbs would later remember that, when I handed it in to the telegraph office, I knew I had burned my boats, and that my whole journalistic career would be made or marred by this message. Susie Dent on how our slips of the tongue help the English language evolve. Read by Margaret. For a linguist, eavesdropping is a necessary art. The lexicographical kind is not quite as mischievous as the words beginning suggest. To eavesdrop was once to stand beneath the eavesdrip of a house, the ground onto which water would drip from the eaves and tune in to a neighbour's conversation. In our case, it's not gossip we're hoping for. What interests us is any new piece of slang, any surprising use of an existing word or evidence of a new one bubbling under, waiting to break through the surface. It doesn't end there. Lexicographers will also gleefully jump upon any slip of the tongue, not, as many might assume, in order to issue stringent usage notes in our dictionaries. Rather, we use such steps off the beaten path to chart the evolution of language, which so often changes by mistake. One of the most famous categories of mistake, which I have been charting for I for a while, is known as an egg corn, a term suggested by the US linguist Jeffrey Pullum for a certain type of linguistic error. The name is a nod to a regular mishearing recorded since the 19th century of acorn, and it is one that makes total sense, for acorns do look a little like little eggs sitting on nature's egg cups. In fact, that's the thing about these slip-ups. They tend to have a kind of internal logic that seduces the brain and allows us to assume that our version is the truth. Have you ever described a rumbustuous individual as behaving like a bowl in a china shop? How a bowl can replicate the fury of a bull is unclear, but china and bowls do go together. So we blindly ignore that minor quibble and move on. Let's not linger on chickens coming home to roast. Often these mistakes arise because the original reference point is now lost. Blacksmiths are no longer firmly on our radar, which means going at something hammer and tongs as though showering blows on a piece of iron with tongues hot from the fire holds little significance to us today. Instead, some of us are sexing things up by going at it hammer and thongs instead. Similarly, many of us now happily describe ourselves as being on tender hooks because the standard version tender hooks means nothing. To those in a cloth manufacturing district, however, it would make perfect sense. 
Tentas are the frameworks on which wet wool is stretched taut for drying. They would be set up row upon row in the open air. The metaphor rests on the idea that we are in a similar state of suspense. Yet today's tender hooks has its own plausibility. It's as though we are so tense that we are tiptoeing carefully to avoid potential pain. Many recent examples can be hilarious. One disgruntled member of a school WhatsApp group liked to moan that a certain pupil was such a pre-Madonna, as though anyone around before the release of Lucky Star was bound to be a diva. Then there are those who decide to cut their nose off despite their face, or who occasionally have to curl up in the feeble position when life gets too hard. Whatever your view on such digressions, it is important to note that they don't represent the demise or death nail, as some might have it, of English. There are dozens of examples of similar mistakes from centuries ago, ones now so enshrined in our language that their histories are invisible. The English tongue struggled mightily with the word asparagus, for example, so dubbed it sparrowgrass. In the same way as the avocado masqueraded as the alligator pear for a while. It's not just egg corns either. We should by rights be freezing rather than sneezing. But someone in the 15th century mistook the F for the old style S and used that instead. How much more evocative of a blocked nose is the original? And many of us are aware that napron, nada, numpier and narange were the original incarnations of apron, adder, umpire and orange before the end decided to wander off and join the A preceding them instead. In some cases, rather wonderfully, we're returning by mistake to the original correct version. We might laugh at those who extol the usefulness of duct tape, but that was the earliest version before duct came along, in which duck, from the Dutch doak, was a word for strong, untwilled linen. When it comes to language, which is a hostage to fashion, as the clothes we wear, it's always been a doggy dog world. To incest, there was once a golden age when mistakes never happened. Well, let's just say that all the evidence shows this theory just doesn't pass mustard. Dave and Graham visit Derby, starting with the Derby Computer Museum. Hello there, Graham and I are in Derby. So what have we come to Derby for, Graham? Uh, see the uh, Christians and uh, walk around and see what we can find. Yeah, let's see some of the sights. And what's Derby famous for? Uh, quite, quite a few things. Um, Lara Croft from the uh, video game Team Raider. Right, okay. We've arrived at Derby Computer Museum. I'm, I'm speaking to Don. Can you give us an overview of the museum, please? Yes, of course. Things we've got to the 
to so, offer. So welcome to Derby Computer yes. Museum. We've been open for about two months, yeah. and um, we're open only on Saturdays at the moment. So we split over two floors. Yeah. Um, on the first floor, we have the old 70s and 80s microcomputers. Yes. So that's the old Acorns and the BBCs and the Commodores. The ones that we used to have to queue up for several hours to get ten minutes on when we were at school. Oh, I see. Right. The Japanese yes. room is, yes. has all the early Nintendos and yeah. Segas and Playstations. Then the British Computing and Gaming History room yeah. is where we have a, a lot of the British um, platforms, yeah. uh, but they're playing the classic, oh, the classic um, uh, UK uh, games houses. So things like Tomb Raider. Tomb Lara Croft. Let's go around. No, you used to make your own games up on the Sinclair ZX Spectrum, didn't you, Graham? It used to be fairly basic. We used to do um, games saying yes or no. We used to have the uh, BBC Basics in school. Uh, when I was at senior school in the 80s, yeah. And what basics. sort of things do you do in the BBC um, Basics? We used to type things out and print, print things up, basically. Tell me about the Amstrads. Amstrad yeah. computers were founded by uh, Lord Sugar. He yeah. has, uh, as in The Apprentice, yeah. Right, so what's that, Graham? On the Thalax Spectrum, yes, he used to load up games, and the Commodores used to load, load up games on the cassette players. Make this dark noise again. That's all, that's all noise he made, really. Right, we have a computer game. Who was that? Um, Jet Set Willy. Jet Set Willy. Yeah, is it based on a, a miner? Uh, a miner, yes. Yeah, yeah that's right. Also, there's also a game um, called Monty Mole, which was um, uh, to do with the miner strike. We are playing Pong now. Uh, possibly the first uh, computer game where we play tennis. We have got Sonic the Hedgehog here, and that constant jingle used to drive me up the wall. <laughs> so this is the uh, game Micro Machines used to like race around uh, a uh, like a table, like a like a worktop table, that sort of thing, and um, it was developed in Southam by a company called uh, Codemasters. I was standing next to the Nintendo uh, 64 and on it is GoldenEye. Um, a, fr a friend, Henry Priestman, did the uh, song for the uh, Nightfire James Bond game, which was on the Xbox. Okay, that was fascinating, Derby Computer Museum. What do you think of it, Graham? Yeah, it's very interesting, yeah. Here is the star on the pavement. And who is it, Graham? It's uh, Lara Croft from the uh, game Team Raider. Well, we're on a riverside walk now along the River Derwent, which is a tributary of the River Trent. And what you can hear in the background is a weir, is the water rushing over a weir. Uh, further downstream is a silt mill, and it was the first silt mill in Britain to be powered by water. Okay, we're walking by the River Derwent, so what's so special about this park? It's a park um, created by the Brewery Bass. Yeah, based in uh, Bernard Trent, just not nearby. Graham, where are we off to tonight? 
Off to see the uh, Christians, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to have a, a meal at the Revolution of Cuba um, with the Derby Girls. Hello, uh, we've just been to the uh, Revolution of Cuba restaurant. I was speaking to one of the Derby Girls, Louise. So, uh, anyway, anyway, I understand that Graham's written a song about you, the Derby Girls. That's correct, for my 50th birthday. Very nice indeed, very nice, great. And so, so whereabouts are you from there? I live at Pentridge, <laughs> Derbyshire. Derbyshire is beautiful, isn't it? It's very nice. Is it nice where you live? Yes, it's very peaceful. We've got lots of uh, nature. We have uh, a red-headed woodpecker comes in our garden. Really? Yeah. Oh, very and we have nice. pheasants and, uh, that uh, come up the, the garden. And we have squirrels. And, yes, it's very beautiful. And lots of little birds. Lots of... Uh, garden birds. Wonderful. So do you like Derby? Uh, the town centre, mm, uh, mm, no not really. I used to come a lot but not anymore. Okay. I like a village pub now. Oh great. That, that is nice. We are going to the flower pot pub aren't we? Yes we are to see the Christians. Yeah. So how long have you been into the Christians for? Oh, uh, well since Mandy took me to my first gig so uh, Julie uh, her friends has loved them forever Hi we're outside the flower pot I've been listening to the Christians and here's the keyboard player Mike so thanks for the entertainment Oh you're most welcome I'm with lovely Davey who's my sister's the biggest fan of him now. She met him right. Dave last week and she really loves you. She had a oh, great that's chat. Fantastic. Yes, so yeah, great. Yes. Our die. Big big up to our die. She's great. Right, so you're, <laughs> so we've you're had a lovely night. Playing. Yeah, that's right. And you you played at the, the cavern last yes, week. Yes, last week. What yeah. was that like? Oh, it was fantastic. It was it was so busy and um hometown obviously amazing. Oh yeah. Uh, so you can't beat it really, can you, you know? No, loyal okay. fans, loyal fans and yeah, yeah it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, so have you met Paul McCartney? Because he comes back there regularly. I've never had the pleasure. I know Gary, Gary and Joey have. They've um, yeah, right. they've met him quite a few times. I've never had yeah. the pleasure, unfortunately. But um, I'd love to. Well, Paul, if you're listening, come down to the next gig. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> you've all been in the world, haven't you? Paul yeah. Keating, yeah, yeah. You have played with Ronan Keating. Yeah, Ronan Keating. I've played with him. Um, for a couple of years, um, yeah. we did like a big tour in Switzerland, uh, like an yeah. ice skating tour. Which oh, was wow. quite, it was Fantastic. loads of ice skaters, obviously, top top like Olympians. Yeah. Put some music, and um, there's also Kim Wilde was on as well. And really? Yeah. Oh, Fantastic. And we did actually we did one show in the UK with that, which was uh, Sheffield Arena. Oh yes, oh, yeah. yeah and uh, then I'd done lots of other stuff with Rowan as well. But then he got back with Boyzone, and then I was yeah. no longer yeah. I was surplus to requirements. Then after that, they had a different keyboard player yeah. for that. You see, so. Yeah, that was good. Um, also, another guy um, I played with is a guy, my, one of my best friends in the whole world. His name's Ariel Bender, Luther Grosvenor. He was from Mott the Hoople, yeah. another band called Spooky Tooth. And, um, yeah. We did an album together as well. He's still yeah. a best, best friend. He's doing, I've got to go down to Worcester because he's doing a new album, so I'm going to yeah. record a few keys on that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been pretty damn good over the last 25 years, I think, altogether. So, well, yeah. thanks for a great evening tonight. Anyway. You're welcome. I love to see you, Dave. I'm Graham. Well, we've had a great day in Derby, and we're just about to walk across 
a rainbow illuminated bridge at night looks absolutely fabulous so thanks a lot Graham for taking me to Derby it's been wonderful yeah, thank it's been you a great time, yeah. it has thank you very much and it's bye from me and it's bye from Graham bye